All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wine, Women, and Words. I am Michelle, and with me, of course, is Diana. Hello. And we have tonight our special guest for December, um, author Mary Vollmer. And thank you so much for joining us tonight, Mary. We're so excited to have you on. Uh, Thanks we've been, for having me. We've been talking about and reading your book, Reliance, Illinois, all month. And um, we're really excited to have you on tonight. Um, how was your How was your Christmas? I guess since we're we're stuck in that like nowhere, that kind of like dead zone between Christmas and New Year's, where you don't really know what to do with your life. The trees up? Do you take it down? Do you wait till after? Uh, yeah, no, I know it's good. Uh, we had family all around. I'm, I'm at my my parents' house, <laughs> so I'm in my <laughs> the room that I grew up in, which is a little odd but fun. <laughs> and my son is sleeping in the other room. Should be should be sleeping in the other room um so it, it has been fun cousins who can who can beat cousins as friends they're cousins are the best i love cut i love my cousins yeah they're great i've got too many cousins but the ones i do know are really great <laughs> i come from a very large family so i'm one of 28 first cousins oh my goodness do you have reunions Between both sides of the family do you, have, Sorry, was did, do you have family reunions where you all gather? Um, no, not really. <laughs> We're all kind of scattered to the wind. Uh, my mom was the youngest of five. No, four. I'm sorry. My mom was the youngest of four. My dad was the youngest of five. Okay. Um, and we all, most of us keep in contact, um, uh, you know, in touch on Facebook and stuff. So, yeah, there's some in the south, some back east. Semi here on the West Coast. I'm kind of like, um, oh, Betty, um, Betty White's character from Golden Girls. Oh. <laughs> they always had a, a story about a cousin, and it was random and quirky, and that's my family. <laughs> well, I'm the young, well, I guess technically I'm not the youngest cousin anymore because I have kids, but I was of my cousins. I'm the baby by a few years, so I was always kind of like, but well. I didn't really grow up with them, but I always felt like the kid sister that like would run after them saying, hey. and there weren't that many girls for mine. I don't know about you, Mary, with, with your cousins, but I was one of the few girls. Oh yeah. I'm the only girl. Well, not really. On one side, I'm the only girl. I have girls on the other side. We had some rough and tumble girls in our family. And so we would, we always got in boots and cowboy hats and went out into um, Elko, Nevada is where my cousins lived. And we thought we were cowboys. So we go out and lasso sagebrush and do all kinds of crazy things. And uh, we were never real comfortable being girls, I don't think. <laughs> we never grew out of that either. <laughs> yeah. I think part of the reason why I have so many like feminist ways and I'm so like very go get them in your face is because I had um, so many male cousins. I, I mean, I had some female cousins too, but I was around the male cousins more. And yeah. I was a little one. And that meant I was the one who was tortured the most. And you had to keep up. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you can't. I mean, I, there's and there's stories, and one of them will never let me babysit for his kids with good reason. <laughs> yeah, payback's a bitch. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I think cousins help shape you almost as much as siblings. 
Yeah, no, mine certainly have. Mine certainly have, as close as siblings in some ways. Well, um, we should probably start talking about the book because um, I literally just read the last paragraph like an hour ago. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> it was with Christmas and, and finals and everything. It was It's always a, a very uh, interesting scheduling pattern to find reading time. But um, before you go into that, Michelle, for those of you who are listening, we do have spoilers. There is a potential for that. So if you've not finished the book yet, it's a good time to shut off the podcast until you finish the book. And then oh yeah, yeah, definitely spoilers. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So go ahead and just put us on pause while you finish the book. <laughs> um, so and when I first started reading it, I did definitely Google because I'm up in um, northern Chicago, about an hour north of Chicago. So I definitely Googled Reliance, Illinois to see how far away I was from it. And then I kind of read the first couple sentences of your acknowledgments and I saw that Reliance wasn't an actual town. Um, so where did your... Um, but I didn't read all of the acknowledgments because I feel like I don't want to spoil any questions I might have. Um, so where did your idea for the town itself come from? You know, the name Reliance occurred to me quite early. Uh, but I think the primary influence was reading Self-Reliance by Emerson and realizing this wonderful essay applied uh, to men but not women who did not have the opportunity to have the education or the political autonomy that they would need to be self-reliant. And so a woman's world was very much a world of reliance and dependence and interdependence. And so as I read more about the time and more about the dark years after the American Civil War where there were hundreds and thousands of young men who had died, that community of women who relied on one another and who were seeking out across the country for other communities in which to create a new home, that, that was what interested me. And then once I had that, I realized it, was a, it, was a, it set the thematic overtone for the whole book, which I really liked. So it wasn't a response anymore to Emerson in the end. It was the, the jumping off point for the thematic um, umbrella that, that kind of held the book together to me when I'm looking at these two coming of age stories of these two women who happen to be mother and daughter going through um, the story. Oh, now the title makes, I love it when the authors explain like some of the, their ideas for the books. Cause then it's like, yeah, I get this dawning like, Oh, now I totally get the title. I totally understand it now. And so, yeah, now I totally get the title and I love it even more. Uh, now, do you think, touching on what you were saying about the civil war with so many people, young men dying and that were, um, do you think that uh, played a role in uh, the suffragist movement? Cause that got really big after the civil war. It was really big before. So 1848 was the Seneca falls convention. And so that mm-hmm. was the first big convention. Okay. And then during the civil war, a lot of the suffragists put their work on hold to support abolition in full. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until after the Civil War that the suffrage movement started to make some grounds again. But they they hit a stumbling block when the um, 15th Amendment came around, which said all persons shall have the right to vote. Victory, right? 
-hmm. but it was changed. It was changed because they were afraid they wouldn't get suffrage for men and black men and all women through Congress. So they changed the language to all men shall have the right to vote. And this actually fractured the suffrage movement after the Civil War into two competing factions. I think Miss Rose and Miss French in the book kind of represent these two ideas of how to attack this problem and how to gain, gain suffrage. Um, so it was kind of a dark ages, a dark mm -hmm. ages of the women's suffrage movement that lasted until what, uh, 1919? Mm -hmm. So you had these very strong personalities like Miss Rose, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who were sure, they were sure that after the Civil War and abolition came into being, they would win the vote. It was just the right time. And they were terribly disappointed. They were, mm -hmm. they were overcome with anger, I think, in some ways, because their vision of equality wasn't ever in, uh, enjoyed in their own lifetimes. It was Maddie and her generation mm -hmm. that enjoyed suffrage. And these young things who had no idea what the battle had even been before. So, uh, excuse me, I can't even remember your question, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that, um, I know Greer McAllister and I have talked about it, the progression of history where it's not just necessarily linear. It's you take a few steps forward and then take a step back. And it, this, yeah. it, it's so very relatable to that. And, and that also brought up another question for me is, um, it's something I've been thinking about through the book. Now you said Mrs. French and Rose represented two specific different fractions of the suffragette movement. Um, or is, were there any specific suffragettes that maybe influenced those characters? You know, at, at first I had, I had that most of my characters are amalgamations of women. Uh, I read mm -hmm. a lot of biographies. So Mrs. French, uh, the relationship between the two, Mrs. French and Miss Rose grew out of a relationship I read from a book called Unsettling the West, which was about Eliza Farnham. And I think I sent you, Dana, a link about her. Yes, yes, and I wrote and, about her for Spam Friday. Oh, good. <laughs> and <laughs> another woman named Georgiana um, Bruce Kirby, who lived together, worked together, but had just entirely different ideas about how to approach the woman question. And so I wanted mm -hmm. to put these two contentious yet respectful people in the same house. Uh, mm -hmm. at the same time, and and the blue stocking era, this is the middle of the blue stocking era, so it's not unusual for this, especially after the American Civil War. Uh, but Rose, Rose was an amalgamation. She, she was one part Fanny Kimball, who was a, a stage actress. She was mm -hmm. Sarah Bernhardt. In fact, she says some things Sarah Bernhardt said in her biography that I, that I cite at the end of the book. She was Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman to run for president. In eighteen seventy, I was so excited when her name came up because I'm I'm kind of a Victoria Woodhull fan girl after um, <laughs> oh, Nicole Evangelina's book. Um, I had read that and that kind of turned me into a fan girl for Victoria. We so should when, when all I be fan girls of Victoria. <laughs> we, we really should be. Uh, she was just that awesome, and I got so excited when her name came up. I was like, ah, and she and she was one of these was people like the too. To say again, I'm sorry, I missed that. Oh, I was like, it's like a Star Wars reference in like some random <laughs> show. It's like, oh my gosh. Okay, <laughs> now carry on. <laughs> she was famous. These women, 
uh, were famous in their time. And why is it that we that so few people know the name Victoria Woodhull or Mary Livermore or Olympia Brown? Mm -hmm. uh, we know Katie Stanton. We know a few. Lucretia Mott, we know a few. But those mm -hmm. are few and far between of, of the women who made really profound changes in the way in which we see femininity and women, womanhood. Mm -hmm. And, and their voices have been lost. Uh, and so my amalgamated characters are in some way speaking in tongues. They're speaking a lot of different ideas. Uh, and, the, and the challenge was to kind of create one character, one body to contain them <laughs> each. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so so Farnarm, Eliza Farnarm, her appearance and her, her very um, un, unattractive features, I think I've given Mrs. French, although Mrs. French is far more attractive than Eliza was in her day. <laughs> Uh, but her voice isn't. You notice Miss Miss French's voice is very thin. It doesn't <clears throat> it doesn't carry the profundity of her ideas with any kind of strength. Yeah, uh, she struck me as a person who would be more comfortable with books than she would be with people. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and she was one of a generation of women lawyers in Illinois and in Chicago in particular, uh, led by Myra. Bradwell, who mm -hmm. passed the bar but was never allowed to practice law, because first because she was woman and then because she was a wife. They the the language with which they prevented her from doing this was just God forbid. God <laughs> forbid. Yeah, but, you know, I don't have a pen on because every time I talk to Mary online, um, I always end up walking away with somebody new to research to include in my blog. If I ever am stuck on who to cover for Facebook <laughs> Friday, all I know all I have to do is just send a message over to Mary and I've got like three weeks worth. And do you so. know you know Myra Bradwell? She'd be great. She's she's she would be, yeah. She's a wonderful person. And and she's right there where you are. So she's up in Chicago. She was oh, <laughs> there before and after the the great fire. I don't know when that was 71 or 72. Oh, no. eight, eight, 18, 71. <laughs> Too. Um, so yeah, and it's a, a lot of these women. For 2018, I'm trying to be proactive with my first Fun Friday. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how long oh. it lasts. Oh. Someone is awake. Which oh, one is it? We're all quiet to see which kid, which kids is awake. Who's gonna come visit? I think it's Landon. Yep, sure is. Hey, buddy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> What's the matter? Oh, Daddy, wake you up. So, um, with as you were saying, with Myra Bradwell. Yeah. Um, she, you know, these are people that we didn't, um, that we didn't know, um, and it's true. I mean, we don't, we don't learn about them in history classes. So much of what I've learned about women's history has been all my own research. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's. Uh, I think Aaron and I, Aaron uh, McCabe talked about mm -hmm. this too. And, and part of it is that the, the history that's recorded in history books, the dates and the, and the names are attached somehow to politics and war. Mm -hmm. and if you take women, uh, you, women aren't allowed in either of those spheres and that's the sphere in which you honor in history, mm -hmm. then of course you're not gonna have a record. What those, where those records live are in diary journals, and in the case of Mary Livermore in autobiographies, in letters home, in correspondence. And that kind of research <clears throat> is happenstance. There's a lot of holes in the record. 
-hmm. Where are those records? You know, they could be in somebody's aunt's closet in the very way back. And, and how would you even discover that? They're, they're often not in libraries. So I think um, those of us who are not academics, but who do serious research are doing a great service by uncovering those kinds of sources and bringing them to the light. Yeah, it's funny. When I started creating her story initially, it was going to be just, you know, my focus for my future books, if I ever do get them published, um, is Italian American history and immigrant history. And initially I was focusing on that. And then I was like, well, there's other women out there. I need to learn about this. And for like a brief moment, like literally maybe about 30 seconds, I had this thought of, oh my God, what if I run out of women to write about? <laughs> <laughs> and that lasted 30 seconds. And here I am. What is it? Three years later uh, with the blog and I'm still, it's like every day is a learning experience. I'm learning somebody new. Um, so it's been a great, you know, tool for me to be able to learn from. Yeah. Um, I, do, I do a talk, a library talk called Imagining History's Lost Voices. And most of it's set with my first book, Crown of Dust. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm going to, I'm going to develop one for this one too, sometime. <laughs> so <Yeah>. eventually. <laughs> um, but part of the talk is a call to action because if these records are indeed in the hands of people like you and me, then people like you and me need to take those records seriously and find those journals and read mm -hmm. those journals and bring those voices to life. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, I think that more and more you're going to find because of the internet, the democratization of that kind of information and it'll be accessible to you and me whether or not we have a great aunt joan who has a great shoebox full of letters we'll still be <laughs> able to access joan's correspondence because we'll have somebody will have documented them online mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah the internet's really great for that um what are you, um michelle did you have any questions uh yeah i was thinking about um, one of the the big things for Maddie at the be at the beginning of the book, um, or or throughout the book, was that she wanted to be beautiful because she felt eh, one of the things that she wrote in her one of her first lessons was that uh, beauty was the key to oh gosh I forget what she said but be beauty was the key to the world basically yeah love, um, love I think she right thank you. Yeah. And, I love that phrase. I love what she wrote there. Um, and I think what she learns or, or what I picked up while reading it is as you learned um, Rose's secret, which kind of scared the heck out of me the first time you, you meet her. <laughs> um, I was like, wait, who is that a ghost that she just saw? Um, <laughs> But I think what she learned as she went through the book is that beauty can sometimes be a burden because women are expected to be beautiful. And if they're not beautiful, then they may not be taken seriously or as seriously as women would be taken during that time. Sure. So I feel like it was almost a lesson to her to learn that it's okay that she looks the way she looks. Yeah, well, and you know, her beauty was no asset to her mother. Mm -hmm. Beauty made her mother a victim, and it made her vulnerable to the gaze of men and to the, and, and Maddie is not going to have that same problem in the same way, although that's not to say that she's 
immune to that kind of uh, violence. Mm -hmm. um, but she is going to have to find another asset. Miss Rose uses that that phrase. Mm -hmm. What is it? What asset do you have beyond your beauty? And in the 19th century, that was the asset women had. Your appeal to the opposite sex, your profession to become a wife was one of the only professions available. And that, that's changing in Maddie's, um, in Maddie's lifetime. And Miss Rose, uh, who has been a theater director, which was an, one of the only professions open to women, wherein they had power over men. If they were owned a theater, they were boss which is, explains perhaps why it was also considered just above a body house as far as, you know, how moral it was, the theater itself. Um, yeah, she, she, she does. And none of these ideas that Miss Rose or Miss French are in fact um, contemporary. They, they're still in circulation but these are ideas that women from biographies that I had been reading at the time were saying forcefully uh, and sometimes I had to look back and figure out whether I had coined a phrase or whether I'd stolen it from you know one of these journals that I had come across so that was a huge labor at the end of the book to figure out which of these phrases were actually Miss Rose and Miss French speaking and which of them um, I, you know, I'd unconsciously cribbed and I've made a pretty careful reference of all of those things, mm. but you could be a teacher until you got married. You can be a nurse until you got married. You could be a whore forever. <laughs> you could be, um, yeah, a lot of these things. And mama learns this fast. You know, what, what does mama have once she's ruined as a woman by mm -hmm. being forced to have sex? She's, she has no options. And she's young and she has nowhere to turn to. The only thing she has, which she discovers in the book, is the capacity to make something, to make a dress. Mm -hmm. And and that economic freedom is what she learns and what frees her. Mm -hmm. And I think probably Maddie, too. Maddie's going to have to make money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, chattering on. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's just, it's, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's great stuff to take into consideration. And, and bringing up Mama, I loved her character. I know Michelle, it took her a little bit to warm up to her. I kind of flip-flopped a little bit on on Rebecca. Like, at first I liked her, and then I didn't like her. And then towards the end, I I respected her. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad. You, you know, you're seeing her through Maddie's eyes in mm -hmm. the start, through Maddie's 13-year-old, frustrated, confused, why are we going to stay with this guy mind, you know? <laughs> and, I hate to and break it to you, Michelle. Uh, when Lully gets to be 13, uh, <laughs> she talk back to you the way Maddie did with her mother. Uh, she might not like you. I'm, I'm just going to warn you now. She's going to like me because I'm going to be the client. <laughs> might not like you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those complicated mama relationships, you know, the... Yeah. I think Maddie says something about swinging like a pendulum between love and hate so that she hardly even understood when she was in one side and when she was another. And, uh, oh, God, I think it doesn't matter where and where you come from. That That's, that's true. <laughs> I've actually heard it said that when, um, when a daughter is born, um, she does everything she can to, to push away from her mother. And that's her lot in life is just to, to try to break away from her mother 
whereas the mother does everything she can to keep the child close to her. Oh, poor um, mom. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you too, Michelle. Enjoy Lily while you can. It's oh, just, yeah. just going to be a lot of wine during those teenage uh, years. Well, I mean, I, I never had, I, my mom and I are really close and we've always been really close. And so the research I had to do for Maddie and her mom was probably rooted in mostly in the stories my students told me at school about them, <laughs> what they're what they were struggling with and how difficult their relationships were. And so so that was hard. And and I didn't like I didn't understand why Rebecca was acting as she was acting at first either. She was mm -hmm. quite frustrating until I understood her as Maddie learned to understand her. And then when I went to revise the book then the challenge was to make sure I leave out enough of, of Rebecca so that we discover her, but also Maddie discovers her over the course of this story. And, and I think she does. I think she discovers who the woman is that she was born to uh, and learns to love herself, even if mom can't quite manage it as, as, she, as moms should. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Rebecca, she's very much a product of her environment and her situation. Um, you know, I loved it when, you know, she asked when, you know, you find out that Maddie got left with Dot. And she, you know, and she asked, why did you leave me? Because of you. Well, then why did you come back? And Rebecca's response was because of you. And that right there just said so much about her character and her motives. It was just everything right there and I absolutely love that that portion of it because it was so revealing for Rebecca's character because she's trying and she tries to do right by her kid but yet she's kind of limited by what she could do I mean if it was another day or time of course she would be doing something else um but yeah like I said she's just she's a product of her environment mm -hmm. and she's a camp follower too she's mm -hmm. from this generation of women who grew up with a, a few men, marriageable men around. Mm -hmm. So had she been, had it not been wartime, she might've found somebody to marry her, you know, and that mm -hmm. would have been her path in life. She, if she had her first child at 13, then you can imagine how many children this woman probably would have had. <laughs> she was 30, that could have been her lot. Um, mm -hmm. But this is, this is 10 years after the, the American Civil War. And mm -hmm. the book was as much about the women left behind in the ashes of that war, as it was about the children who were born in the dark shadow of that war and what it was mm -hmm. like to grow up in the midst of that kind of um, crisis, ongoing crisis. Very few fiction I'd, uh, books I'd read, fiction, considered a character after the war. It was always mm -hmm. looking at the drama during Mm -hmm. But I was living in 2000-whatever <laughs> in the shadow of however many wars back in the Middle East. You know, they say seemed to be the shadow. Mm -hmm. The shadow was long and still, and, and still affects not only military families, but whole communities. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, I just had a question and it flew straight out of my head. Um, oh, not a question, but a comment that she... It, and after she's at Mrs. Miss Rose's house, and everyone is talking about uh, when William and Rose and another gentleman go and visit her father, 
in in his bedroom and they're talking about him like he isn't there and he's they're saying you know everything that he accomplished and everything that he predicted and um uh maddie's thinking you know they're talking about these events or they're talking about time like as if a time existed before the war you know that there was there was something that happened that existed before that because that's all she's known and that kind of goes back to what you just said that She's growing up in in the shadow of something that tore the country apart and and they don't know what's gonna happen now. Right, and it's still not back together. I mean, it's still, we're still suffering similar rifts in ideals, I, th I think, that, that stem from this moment, um, this incomplete moment of- There's actually a sociological study on that. Um, oh, maybe, probably. <laughs> there was, yeah, I remember seeing the study on it. Um, that we are just as divided as we were um, during the Civil War, and we are divided right along the same lines mm -hmm. as we were during the Civil War. You for Union versus Confederate. Not the well, ideal. Well, you look at really after. Been... Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. I can see that I'm still talking over you. Uh, <laughs> After the, the World War II, you also saw there's kind of patterns of social behavior. And I'm not a sociologist, but I just, just recognize this as in the product of the research is that after the war, everybody kind of adopts this nostalgic uh, reminiscence of how it was before the war. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it creates, at least in these two eras, um, a backlash against the rights women have gained. Because if we're going to return to before the war, then all the women who had been running the factories and making the munitions and running the sanitary societies, they need to go back and mm -hmm. believe again that their primary place is in the home. Mm -hmm. There were women like Marie, uh, Mary Livermore who, before the American Civil War, before organizing huge numbers of people all over the country to provide food and medical supplies to the union, didn't believe that suffrage was something that she should have. She didn't believe that women should have it. After the war, after having run and run what was essentially a, a, a company herself with the help of other women, she decided that yes, we should have the vote, but the country wasn't ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. um, and then you, had, then you had the moral backlash against women if you're going to return to a better ideal place, then we need to we need to kind of impose this these ideas of morality that never really existed anyway, like like birth control. We can talk about birth control all night if you want, but totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm researching Emma Goldman and the anarchist movement oh, of great. the early 1900s now. Um, yeah, I'm in the process of editing one book and starting and researching the next one. And yeah, a birth control. I could talk about that all night too. And how <laughs> got arrested, and it was this whole yeah. big deal. Um, yeah, and then we're still fighting that birth control battle, something that should have been settled almost a hundred years ago. Um, yeah, or more than that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's true. There's a book by Ursula Gwynn, The Left Hand of Darkness, mm -hmm. that imagines hermaphroditic person going to another world in which the humanoids here are um they don't reveal themselves as one gender or another till the moment of coitus oh really <laughs> so, so this means 
So this means that you don't know whether you're going to get pregnant or the other person's going to get pregnant because you don't know whether you're going to be the boy or the girl in the in the act until you, the act begins. And so the result is there's like universally accessible birth control, great childcare because there's no there's no debate about whether this is moral or not. It's just that everybody needs it because everybody has well, yeah. getting pregnant. That's an interesting uh, story premise. <laughs> Oh, Ursula Le Guin is a goddess. (laughs) She's amazing. And yeah, it sounds like something like um, you'd recently see in like, um, oh, like Orville or some other sci-fi show going on. It's such a great premise. I love it. It's a good book to add to my reading list. See? Talk to Mary, you wind up with like five women to go follow and research. Well, anarchists, there's a book. Have you read uh, Joan Sibler's Fools? No, but I will now. It's set, it's set, I think it starts in the 20s, 1920s, but anarchists is the kind of the, 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 what holds the link stories together. It's very good. It's really mm-hmm. good. I don't, I don't know if it'd be any, any use to you, but. I would, it, yeah, I would, because I'm right now really studying the philosophy and theory, and I'm reading um, Emma Goldman, Living My Life, which is about. Yeah, yeah, because she was my main character's uh, best friend in the anarchist movement. So I'm like, okay, okay. there's not much on, because I'm writing about Maria Rhoda. And so there's not much on Maria Rhoda, but there's a whole lot on Emma. So I can learn from Emma um, a lot of what Maria's thoughts and feelings were. Sure. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, she talks a lot about that. And then it's interesting comparing the suffragist movement to the um, to like the anarchist movement and like Emma's thoughts and opinions on the matter mm-hmm. uh, the suffragists because they didn't really get along. That's like a whole nother third fa- uh, faction that I've been seeing. Yeah. Um, well, the, and that's a myth. The myth of unity is a is an enduring myth. And, mm-hmm. and, and people are constantly fractured over very, even if they want the same larger goal, how to achieve mm-hmm. that goal is always in question and how to define, mm-hmm. and who is it that gets to benefit? Who, who's mm-hmm. left out? When they changed the language from all persons to all men, they took women out of the equation. But mm-hmm. what they also did is took vote, people who had have voted in favor of, um, civil rights amendments mm-hmm. out of the equation. So mm-hmm. whereas they did pass the, the law and they did get um, suffrage for African-American men, there's arguments that Jim Crow rose up as it did because there was no teeth to enforce it. They didn't have a critical mass of numbers to enforce those kinds of laws. They didn't have women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's assuming, of course, that women would have been would not have been as racist as their male counterpoints. Parts, which I is think a were, yeah, I, I think, and it's it's funny because you also have like the suffragette movement where who was saying that women were morally superior, like Barnham's <laughs> uh, ideas there that women were morally superior. And I, I remember sending my husband the links. I was like, "Hey, check this out. Next time we argue, remember this." Right, um, morally superior, and yet she didn't believe in the vote. Yeah, that was interesting. The the I love the whole dichotomy too of looking at some of our historical figures where she didn't believe in the vote, but yet she felt women were morally superior. Yeah. Um, or with Emma, one of the kicks I've gotten out of her is 
she didn't think women were moral, morally superior. She thought if they became part of the system, they would become just as corrupt as the system itself. But yeah. she still thought they should vote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's what's fun about creating characters too, is that that they can yeah. inhabit all of these, like like Rebecca, for instance, she's. Mm-hmm. And from some perspective, she's a difficult woman to like at first because you're seeing her through Maddie's eyes. And it's not until you get a... That's why I like novels, because you can get... Over the course of a novel, you can grow these characters Mm -hmm. so that you see them from this direction and this direction and this direction. Mm -hmm. And you may not want to have coffee with, you know, Melbourne Stockwell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might understand him a little bit more. There's at least a chance for empathy Mm-hmm. that that i think fiction offers and connection to people very uh, unlike yourself in every way which i mm-hmm. enjoy yeah and I, one of the things i love about the picture is that you can take that little bit of history and you can fill in the blanks how you want based on the little piece of history that you're able to gather and put together um from an incomplete record right well i, I think that's why one of the reasons why um historical fiction about women is so fruitful now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because the record is incomplete mm-hmm. and so as frustrating that is for the historian for the novelist and the storyteller mm-hmm. that allows for opportunity and we may not be able to recreate the life of a particular woman but we might be able to reveal the lives of a whole variety of women by creating a character who inhabits um, a place and a time in a particular way mm-hmm. and that's a that's a tremendous opportunity uh, I, I think the historian who's who's married to the record doesn't have. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to take a few moments here before uh, we get close to the end uh, to talk about William. I, uh, <laughs> I was just going to say we, we, we have to talk about William. William. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. I still, even at the end, when all is said and done, I still like William. I said it. I liked him. Oh, Michelle, would you like to? <laughs> well, I, I have mixed feelings about William. I, I liked Hanley from, from the first time that he showed up. I, I liked him not, maybe not as who he became for Maddie, but just as a character, I liked him. Yeah. But William, I, I wanted to like him. And I, but I, I was never sure if he was going to end up being the, the person. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. And, and they agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Will, William. So, um, so to say I like William is to say I like him as a character. Uh-huh. I love how he just. I loved how he was as a character. I I would never want my friends or my daughter to date him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Understandable. <laughs> that too. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think he too is a product of the war. Uh, and, and a lot of these men, post-traumatic stress syndrome wasn't, wasn't a term at the time. But mm-hmm. as a war photographer, you can just imagine what he'd seen and done. And, mm-hmm. and I cut so much of him out of the book. <laughs> um, really? When I realized it was Maddie's, you know, it was Maddie's story. And as compelling as he was to me and as compelling as the photography as a practice was, mm-hmm. uh, it just, it was, it was taking over too much of the story. Mm-hmm. 
uh, which, you know, what was he doing? Mansplaining in my own book? I don't know, but he was. own <laughs> <laughs> book. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it. I love that relationship that the two of them had. Because, I mean, really, when you look at it, it was, he always thought of her as that friend, of that little sister kind of relationship. And I don't know, when he goes and takes off and does what he does with the Stockwells, I'm like, I, I felt like, ha, in your face. Yeah. I just. I, I felt like the Stockwells got what they deserved. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, he always, I mean, without him, how would he have gotten to, to Miss Rose's house? He was, he's always, he's kind of the bridge between mm-hmm. Maddie's two, two possible lives Maddie could have. And, and every girl really, they have that first crush that, that oftentimes that older guy that's around, um, they want him to be more, and even though he recognizes it, he still sees her as the friend and lets her, you know, he tries to recognize her as a friend, too. And he is attractive. I mean, I can see from a distance how attractive he would be in a, in a, in a town full of single women. We <laughs> <laughs> casted Zachary Levi as William, so I mean, he is attractive. We can attest to that. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it has yeah. been confirmed that that he's definitely good looking. Mm-hmm. Who's gonna send him the email? You or me? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, it's your book. We'll let you take care of that. Right. Part. Right. Right. <laughs> I already cast Miss Rose as uh, Meryl Streep, but she hasn't answered my email yet. So that's a good one. I like that. I was thinking about her picture on my wall, not because I thought she herself was anything like Miss Rose, but I thought she could play. She could mm-hmm. play Miss Rose. Could. I could totally see that now because she and, could do the vulnerability and the and the bravado she could do the whole concert yeah that's perfect performance yes. we had Kathy Bates as Dot oh oh yeah good one <laughs> and did who did we do did we have anyone for Maddie and Rebecca yet I feel like I think those were two that we couldn't figure out I my, think Rebecca Maddie would be for somebody who was you know, an, an up and coming girl. Yeah. I mean, you got to start off with a 13 year old. So on that. Yeah. But I, I have Natalie Portman in my mind for mama. Dude. So did I. Uh, <laughs> like I was thinking about that. I was like, Natalie Portman would be good for mama. She yeah. might be good for that. In fact, Natalie Portman now, she's just got a few wrinkles now, which is, uh-huh. you know, mama would be 26, but aged, you know, 10 or 15 years older than that for, mm-hmm. um, Probably. And Natalie Portman hasn't really aged much since she was 15. No, so. she, she's Seriously. being and mysterious. She could pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> and was it Donald Sutherland for Mr. Dreyfus? Yep. That's right. <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought of him. Oh, he's good. <laughs> yeah. We take our fantasy casting very seriously. Very good. I have yes. my students do this sometimes in class so that they really have to think about character. I'd have them cast characters in books so that they have. It's like fantasy football for us. <laughs> you, need to, you need to create that app. Somebody needs to make that app. We do. We do. Yes. I think it'll be uh, one woman awards first actual app. I'm going to grab this I'm a, a plug in. I'll be right back. Okay. So what do you so, think? Uh, yeah, tell us about your one. I'm having a Pinot Grigio, I think. It's very good. It's I actually got into the Noble uh, Rot wine. Oh, nice. 
Yes. I don't know. Did you see the picture I posted of the bottle of wine buried in snow outside? Because we I were... saw that. That was. <laughs> Are you taking all these pictures? Because they're fantastic. You oh, we both. Yeah, we both do them. Oh, they're so good. Mm. Oh, thank you. They take planning and effort and goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like a book photographer. I'm shaky because I'm holding this darn thing. Okay, I'm gonna unplug this and then see if it see if it works. Okay, I'm back. Not right. shaky. Not, I'm back. Not shaky. I know sometimes if, if I'm trying to take a picture and I'm taking too long, my kids will come to see what I'm doing, or my husband will look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> Like, and then, then you have to edit it, and then you do hashtags. It's a whole process. Oh, it is. oh yeah. The I'm learning a lot about that. I, I don't know enough about that kind of thing. Probably. I have the hashtags are great when you want to search for something specifically mm -hmm. um, for a certain subjects. And I actually have mine saved in a file on my phone in my memo. I have package. to do that. I I heard that somewhere, and I thought that was brilliant, but I haven't done it yet. Yeah, that's what I do. I just save them all there. So when I need to actually make a photo. I'll make a photo and then I'll just copy and paste them over. Ah, gotta have so, a system. Yeah, I, exactly. I do have a question. At the very end of the book, there's a date at the end. Mm -hmm. It's August, what is it? August 8th. Hold on, let me get there. August 27th, 1908. And I Googled that date to see if anything specific happened. And, uh, Lyndon Johnson was born on that date, um, <laughs> but what what was the what is is there a significance for Maddie for that date? There is. So the first um, suffrage march in Oakland was held that day for women, oh. and so this is. And at the end, she's actually getting ready for that. And okay. Yeah, and and but but I liked that. I liked in there because at that moment. Uh, it's still 10, over 10 years before they actually win the vote. So at this moment, as she's writing, she still doesn't know. This narrator still doesn't know if she will ever see the vote. So mm. those, that, 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 that tone of, of longing and, and a hope, hopeful hopelessness, <laughs> I guess, is that, <laughs> that, that she writes and she, she's working for her girls now, uh, is, it needed a date that was not final. Um, had it been the day when they'd won the vote, I, I didn't want it resolved. I wanted the feeling that this this fight was going to go on and that also our fight, whatever, however we choose to see that, is ongoing. And we may never know, like Maddie doesn't know, that what we fight for will ever come to fruition and yet she she does anyway. Mm -hmm. So that that was, I even, I had, a, I had an atlas of, Oakland in that day and time so I could figure out whether or not where the march was on the streets mm -hmm. as they existed in 18 in the early oh, 1900 wow. so that I knew she would be in a house front where the march would go past because I needed I needed all those details to be real why because you know Michelle might have looked them up <laughs> <laughs> Michelle looks I up I should have thought to put Oakland in my search. I don't know. I, I just did the date and, and I didn't think to include the place. There's a lovely term, um, uh, what uh, Karen Fowler uses. And she says she, she doesn't write historical fiction. She writes fiction in a place in time, a place in time. So she doesn't mm -hmm. ever separate the two. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love that. I love the idea that, that, that the place and time are interconnected so completely 
Because if you look at our lives in 2017, but you look at the lives of Middle Eastern women, um, the place and time matters a great deal to our two experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, that with historical fiction is the same. You know, even, even Oakland from the Midwest to DC, the, the experiences of, of a woman, of anyone, is, is going to be different based on those two nodes, where those two nodes meet. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my husband's a mathematician. He could probably tell you mathematically what all that <laughs> axis intersect. And, and I would often <laughs> smile. <laughs> Sounds like me when it comes to math. Oh, I, I love math from a distance. I don't like it at all from any distance. <laughs> I guess that's, that's, the, that's the truth. I like it far, far, far away from me. You know, Michelle, no one's ever asked me that. And I've kind of been dying for somebody to ask me about. Really? At the end of the book, because it was so uh, intentional. <laughs> I put it, I was so careful about that date and that, that place and. No one's ever asked me about it before. So thank no, you. It's, that's not the first time an author has been like, oh, wow, this is the first person who's asked me that. I'm yeah, so you guys are good. <laughs> Yay, thanks. Well, you can't throw a date at the end of, at the very end of a book no. with no explanation. Like, it has to mean something. There's so a lot of the things. journalist in the conversation. Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. There's a lot of little things, a lot of little inside jokes in the book, too that I don't think anybody will ever find. But one I'll, I'll share with you is that um, the, his, the book that Maddie's reading in the beginning on the floor, uh, the history of birds, it's the history of British birds or something strange. Uh-huh. It's the book Jane Eyre is reading in the very beginning of- No way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, all right, now I see that. And the whole time, I'm, like once she, start, once she actually gets to Miss Rose's house, I kept thinking this feels like it feels like Jane Eyre. That's when it struck me that the whole book itself had this Jane Eyre feeling about it. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. And and the great expectations with the, Mrs. Haversham, you know, Miss Rose. And you have, I, I was <laughs> just unabashedly influenced and happily influenced by those books. <laughs> well, see, now when I read it, I will be able to make the comparison because Jane Eyre is on my list. I was oh, going to love it. You love it. This year. Yes, I've decided, I was talking about, about it with Diana during one episode, that I haven't really read m- any, really, classics. I've just, I've never gotten around to it. So I'm doing a classic journey next year. I pick 12 books, and I'm going to read one a month, and Jane Eyre is on my list. Okay, so Jane Eyre, and then what else are you going to do? I have, uh, what do I have? I have The Dubliners. I have... Uh, Diana, um, um, because <laughs> you sent me the list, and uh, like a bunch of them were ones that I recommended. Um, because I recommended the Dubliners because I have to read the Dubliners this year too. Because that's I picked oh, that up at Shakespeare and Company. Um, oh, what else did you have that was on 1984? I think was on your list. 1984 Fahrenheit 451. Um, the I'm pulling it up right now because okay. it's driving me crazy. It's funny that she said Fahrenheit 451 because I remember my father is part of the reason why I'm such a bookworm. But my father is an over-enthusiastic bookworm when introducing um, me and my brother and sister to classics. Okay. I don't think my sister, my brother got it as bad because he's the youngest, but 
I remember I was in seventh grade and I'd spend my summers in California with my dad and my stepmom and Fahrenheit. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. It was a fountain pen. I always, oh, I always right. think Fahrenheit 451, but yeah, he was really into the fountainhead and he was making me read at the summer of my of seventh grade. And I remember sitting by the pool and all my friends are by the pool and I are in the pool playing and splashing around. And I'm sitting at the pool trying to read my chapters for my dad. And my stepmom just looks over at me. She's like, you hate this book, don't you? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, you want to put it down and go play with your friends, don't you? And I was like, yeah. She's like, go play, go. Oh, <laughs> and he did that to my sister with, um, oh, um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yeah. He did that to her when she was too young for To, to Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Most, most high school students are, too. Yeah, well, she wasn't even in high school yet. She was oh. like barely junior high, not even in junior high when he made her read that one. Um, well, that one I did. Are you grateful now? <laughs> uh, now we're, I'm very grateful now. Okay. Um, I don't know about my sister, but I know I'm very grateful now. So my list, okay. I have Catcher in the Rye, A Wrinkle in Time, It Can't Happen Here, 1984, Fahrenheit 451, The Woman in White. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tess of the Dubervilles. Good luck. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the Dubliners, The Great Gatsby, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Okay. So how yeah. are, you gonna, are these authors booked? Or are you going to have be able to get them on the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to get them all on Wine Women Awards. We're going to have a professional seance uh, person okay. come on. Yeah, we're we're going to do some channeling. You know, we can... We can bring Liz back on the show and see see what she can do. Good. good. Those are all good. Those are all fantastic. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll send you some more. Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre. Yeah, I got so I got a I got a necklace somewhere from Christmas that had Pride and Prejudice script on it. Oh, oh, I love those necklaces. Yeah, it's great. But I, I hadn't worn it because I was wearing my my rose for Miss Rose oh. to try to to try to figure out how to write this woman who was just driving <laughs> me nuts. So, <laughs> did your kid go back to sleep? Was is he, I? I don't he... even know where he is. Is he on the couch? <laughs> he just he just got up and walked away, and I was and, you know talking to you guys. So I can't be like, all right, bye. I'm gonna go check out my kid right now. But he is on the couch apparently. I think mine's asleep. I haven't heard a peep, so. And mine is now, finally. Um, apparently the boogeyman showed up at the front door. Oh, mm, yeah, it sounded like it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, these boogeymen showing up randomly at my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least your dogs bark. My dog is like 20 times their size and he does nothing. <laughs> He's got like Napoleon complex syndrome. So, oh yeah, River. He's a husky, but when he like, if he stands like straight on looking at you and lowers his head, he looks very wolf. Mm -hmm. So he he has size going for him. Like yeah. people are deterred by his size, but if they actually come up and talk to him and interact with him, he's it's it's he's toothless. It's kind of like Hanley, I think, most of the book. Hanley is this big. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, 
I, I to just reels us back in. Um, no, I, I'm a, sorry. I'm a, I'm a sem- seminar teacher. That's uh, that's what you do. No, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and so well done. Um, yeah, definitely. That's that's totally Henley in a nutshell. He's he looks big and monstrous. And at first, I thought he was going to be awful, but then over time, you just see he's just one big titty bear. Big boys. So- I have another question, and I don't know if you know the answer, but we, okay. I asked this before in one of our episodes. There is a scene where Hanley and Maddie are separating the letters for the printing press. Um, the, the tiles are, or, well, I forget the name for them. Oh, the and type. the type, thank you. Mm-hmm. And um, Dreyfus comes in and he tells Hanley to mind his P's and Q's because he keeps mi- mixing them up. And I thought, is that where that expression came from? It is. Yeah, it is. It's exactly where that came from. P's and Q's look so much the same. And, and it's really difficult because when you, when you create type, you place the type upside down and backwards along a metal cassette like, like this. And so it's very easy to misplace your P's and Q's or B's and D's or you know, a lot of these, these letters. So yeah, the, watch your P's and Q's is a printing term. We don't just get drunk and talk books. Uh, you guys are good. You see the details. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> that's all Michelle. I see big picture. Michelle sees the details. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Again, journalist, novelist. That's yeah. <laughs> we cover it from all angles. That's great. What a yeah. <laughs> Well, I do think we are coming up on our hour. And do you have the the copy of our next book to show everyone handy? I have it, but it's over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Atlantean. It's going to be our first sci-fi book. Oh, very good. Mine came today in a box of books and wine, and it was glorious. Oh, a combination. <laughs> So that's our January book, and we are not having an episode next week. We are taking our our winter, I guess, break. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we'll be back on the 14th, so start reading that. It is The Atlantean by Deborah Pratt. And if you stayed on and have yet to read uh, Reliance, Illinois, um, and you stayed on and uh, suffered through the spoilers, pick up your copy now. You can get that now, you can read it, and you can see all the fun stuff that we were talking about. But there's so much more that we didn't talk about, so you're not, it's, it's not all spoiled. There's no, plenty still to, to read. Yeah, we didn't even touch on Violet. I loved her. She was oh, vile Violet. <laughs> I I, she was just, mm, I, I had words with her as oh, I was reading. Good. I love to hate her. She was so great. You have great. to have a nemesis. You have to have a nemesis in life. You do. Right? But, and okay, we're going to extend here a little okay. bit. Um, <laughs> I loved the part when she thought that Violet had stolen her scrapbook and she basically attacks her for it. And then Rose <laughs> is like, oh no, I asked uh, Mrs. Hardro to do it for me. It wasn't Violet, it was me. And I feel like she, Violet kind of in that moment became an easy target to pin it on, temporarily yeah. at least. It was like Snape for Harry Potter. Yep, exactly. 
except go ahead <laughs> except not Snape in so many ways <laughs> yeah she's her she mouth she's fun I liked but I liked making I liked watching Violet work. <laughs> she, vile Violet. <laughs> I think Malfoy and Violet would have been made a good couple. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I did consider that. And uh, <laughs> if, if Georgiana hadn't been so perfect, you know, that that would might have happened. <laughs> <laughs> if only Violet had gotten her letters from Hogwarts. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> It, Slytherin would have made so much sense for her. Wow, this book what? sounds crazy. <laughs> People are like, wait a minute, there's witchcraft in this book? <laughs> I know, there's You're spiritual. talking about suffragettes, right? Yeah. And there's, there's, a, there's a seance, you know. Yeah. There is. So it, it all ties in. <laughs> oh, I, my, my face hurts. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a good thing. That is a good thing. Right. Well, well, we will let you go now. Otherwise, we'll keep talking for like another hour. Well, this was a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on and for, for uh, reading that book and uh, spreading word about it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you for coming on. That was fun. Yeah. Best of luck to both of you. Let me know if I can be of any use in the future. Well, Definitely. we've got to uh, set for our, um, our virtual literary festival. Oh, right. Yeah, you'll have to tell me more about that. That sounds like fun. <laughs> so you can come and have fun with that too okay i'm there all right Here. Well, <laughs> happy new year happy new yes. year to both of you and um have a good night thank you good, good night, night everybody Bye.